Uh, well, hey guys, this is kind of a, a bit of a different concept for me anyway, and I think uh, the guys from Cancelled for Maintenance as well, but we're going to do a collaboration episode between the Plaid Jacket Philosopher podcast and the Cancelled for Maintenance podcast. So I'm Zach from the Plaid Jacket Philosopher, and I'll introduce, or well, you guys can introduce yourselves from Cancelled for Maintenance, and we'll get this thing rolling. Hi everybody, I'm Six from the Cancelled for Maintenance podcast. I am one of three co-hosts for the show. I'm MBP, uh, one of the co-hosts, uh, as Six had mentioned. Uh, from the Cancer for Maintenance podcast. Looking forward to uh, working on this collab today. It's a, it's a new new thing for me, so I'm excited for it. And I am Shoreline. I am co-host and producer of Cancer for Maintenance podcast. Hey, hey. <laughs> thanks <laughs> right for on, having guys. us on. Yeah, no, thanks for coming on and thanks for having me on your guys' show. You know, this will be released on both platforms. So whatever one you're listening to it on, um, maybe, you know, check out the other one as well. I think we'll have a good conversation today on maintenance in general and kind of what drew us all into the trades, I, I kind of imagine. Yeah, I think this is going to be our first one where we cover both in the air and then below the below the earth. So we're recovering to the most. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll be in the depths and, and at altitude. Right. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what I kind of thought was cool. You know, you guys, well, being Yanks and covering, you know, the, the machinery miles above the ground. And then I've worked on the, the machinery that's kilometers below the earth up, up here in Canada. So I just thought it would be kind of a cool contrast to see the similarities and maybe the differences between the two fields. And uh, what, what part of Canada are you uh, working out of? Uh, I live in British Columbia. So the West coast of Canada, kind of directly above Oregon and Washington state. Nice. Very, uh, very pretty part of the world. Oh, it's beautiful. We're getting, well, I don't know actually what it converts to in Celsius, but it's about 30 degrees or sorry in Fahrenheit, but it's about 30 degrees Celsius here today. It's, it's hot. We're finally getting our kind of April heat wave. So I'm not complaining. So that's kind of, that's close to like almost 90 here in in Fahrenheit. Yeah. Uh, actually, yeah. I think you're about right. So it, it's hot <laughs> for, for Canada. Anyway, it's hot for April. Yeah. So uh, I figured like for anybody who isn't really familiar with all this, like I, I figured we could go over some introductory questions and kind of get to know everybody. So what kind of drew you guys into the trades? What got you started in, well, in your case is aircraft mechanics. Uh, wow. Okay. So I, I originally stuck, my first ever job was to install telephones. And so I had dealings with wires and that was kind of a gearhead myself, like just doing mom and pop fixes. Um, oil filter changes, uh, like minor engine work because I didn't have all the gear to do it. But I was always, um, I always wanted to do something with my hands and just kind of get out, get out on the field and just do stuff. So I wasn't all about really writing a desk that much. I eventually joined the military and it came down to like, well, you, you can't shoot a gun or you can't be <laughs> the guy on the, you can't be the boots on the ground because family reasons. And they wouldn't, at the time I was underage, so they wouldn't let me do it. So I decided like, well, I kind of like doing stuff with my hands. I might as well use that while I'm in the service. And I picked up being an aircraft mechanic. And it's been one of those where like every day is a different challenge. So I got, I got that, that fulfillment piece out of it. And it's been a pretty good ride so far. Yeah, that's great. And MVP, what about you? So I'm, I'm not prior military. Uh, I've spent majority of my career doing military contracting, though. I uh, worked on some private uh private jets as well, and space flight systems at uh, other companies. But <clears throat> initially, I wanted, to, I wanted to be a pilot, wanted to, wanted to fly fast movers, i.e. Fighter, fighter jets and all that kind of stuff. That's something I wanted to do since I was a little kid. And uh, when the time came, I 
to to enlist or whatever else, I applied to the Naval Academy on two separate occasions and uh, was denied both times. Um, one time for academic reasons. The second time was for uh, medical. I I have a little bit of a spinal issues, and they basically said that's not going to happen. If you have to punch out, you'll die. I said okay, so denied. So I went to the other branches and said, "Hey, I would, you know want to fly?" And they said, "Well, you know, we can get you." At the time, there wasn't like street to seat program, so now there. So it was one of those. Well, we can start you here, uh, and then once you're in, you can just you know do an internal transfer. We'll talk with my cousins who were already in the military. They said, "Don't sign that paperwork. You're going to get screwed." And so I, I kind of turned away from that, um, and I said, "Well, what's the next best thing?" And I saw a, a late night TV ad for an A and P school, and I said, "Well, if I can't fly, might as well work them." So I, I went to A and P school, and a few years later, came out with a license, and um, and been working working maintenance ever since. So when you started, you got into you went to school first, kind of after kind of searching out your your different uh, career routes. Yeah, yeah. So I searched it out, and I, to be honest with you, I didn't even know an A and P school uh, was a thing until I saw that late night ad. And my dad was hounding me at the time because all all the guys I was graduating with, friends and stuff, they had already known where they were going to college and everything else. And my dad was b- bugging me, "Hey, where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going?" I was like, "I'm going to go here. You know, let's go check it out." Yeah, that's so awesome. It was the yeah, so it was the Pittsburgh uh, Institute of Aeronautics. So we we traveled over there, uh, looked at the school. So yeah, it sounds like this is a place for me to be, and uh, signed up, and that was it. And so it was uh, 22 months straight through. Uh, no breaks, and you come out with uh, AMP and an associate's degree, um, and then from there, um, they had a couple of uh, companies that would come to the school, and you could interview on site, uh, job pending, because you can't actually take the AMP license test until you graduate. Oh, that's that's interesting. Yeah, so you go through the whole schooling. We had the graduation ceremony in the hangar, and then we turned around, walked right back inside, and took the test. Uh, and so passed the test, got the license in the mail, and then. Uh, moved to the West Coast um, for my first uh, job out of school after that. Are you still out West? Yeah, I'm still out West. I've I've moved uh, back and forth across the country about four times now Oh, uh, following different jobs and stuff. But we're currently, I'm back, back where I started on the West Coast. Right on, right on. So it sounds like both of you, like six, going back to what you had said too, like you weren't really drawn to sitting in a class. I mean, I find that me being in trades, like I'm an electrician, obviously a totally different field, but... I find a lot of tradespeople kind of have that in common. Like you, you aren't exactly drawn to sitting in a desk and doing paperwork all day. It's more, you like to get your hands into something. Right. Right. Absolutely. And I think a lot of that is just cause like, uh, I've never sat down and actually like done any of that stuff. You know, I mean, nowadays I do because that's just how life progresses, but <laughs> right. And it's uh, a bit more of the things you're interested in now. Right. I mean, I mean, we're trying to go for longevity here. <laughs> you know, like there's only so there's only so much you can put the the load on the mule before he finally gives out. You know? That's a good that's a good point. And so yours going through the military, were uh, did you have to pay that cost up front for school, or was it kind of an apprenticeship as you were going through the military? Did did they kind of cover that end for you? So all of all of the training I received, uh, well, most of it was all military uh, related. So like the military had their own schools, they had their own instructors. I didn't really have to pay for any, I didn't like to pay for anything for as far as training is concerned. Oh, awesome. But if I say, if I wanted to get a license or if I wanted to get a degree, I would have to go to a school and depending on what it is, 
the military can reimburse me up to a certain amount. And I haven't really done any of that. So uh, most of the stuff I got, I was like, what can I get for free? So I just did those. <laughs> <laughs> you know? hey, I would have done the exact same thing. I mean, we have all kinds of uh, subsidies to help get people into trades, especially when I started, because there was such a shortage of young tradespeople right. in, uh, in BC, especially. And we were ho- coming into a housing crisis. So they had to start getting boots on the ground and people building things again. So yeah, I got a, a bunch of freebies through incentives from the government, which I'm, I'm not complaining about either. That's pretty nice. Uh, I, for A&P schools, I know, I mean, you can get scholarships here and there, but nothing like you would achieve um, for going to a major university. Right. Uh, because it is a trade school and that's kind of how they do things here in the States. Now I know, I know there's a shortage of trades down here. So a lot of companies now will hire you on and they'll pay to send you uh, but that's mostly for like uh, carpentry, uh, electricians, HVAC systems, um, nothing, nothing aviation related. Unfortunately, in the States, um, aviation maintainers are considered an unskilled labor. Even the auto industry is considered a skilled labor. Are you and kidding? We can thank, we can yeah. thank Nixon for that one. Yeah. yeah. He, uh, Jesus. He, unskilled. he hooked us up. Well, what's the saying, MVP? Unskilled, but essential. <laughs> That is crazy that that's classified as unskilled. That's that's crazy to me, <laughs> man. So I, I know we had kind of talked about this just before recording and six. I'm sure you've got a lot of stories, but have either of you guys ever had like anxious moments, you know, rolling a piece of gear out or have had to put kind of Band-Aid fixes on a machine out in the field just to get it back to shop or or to where somewhere they can properly fix that that part? Oh, oh, absolutely. And I, and I think we've kind of addressed some of this in one of a few of our episodes. Uh, one of them was uh, the janky GSC episode where like uh, MVP mentioned, like he had a tow tractor that takes a, uh, an aircraft in and out of where it needs to go. It got so uh, hoopty or so broke that they had to use like a pair of pliers to be the gas pedal. Like they would just pull on the <laughs> throttle cable to go forward and back. And then you're flying through the air with that thing. Well, well, yeah, well, well th- you're moving the aircraft around with that thing. So the chances of the the vice grip slipping off the cable and the machine lurching forward and smashing the aircraft or whatever is pretty pretty high at that point. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, no kidding. <laughs> now, as far as like aircraft fixes, I mean, it, this uh, this may seem like a scary thing, but duct duct tape or uh, what we call like a flashbreaker tape or 100 mile an hour tape fixes a lot of stuff <laughs> granted it's so not I know, like- I know like overseas when i was on uh, working working abroad and in various undesirable locations in my past uh we had an all composite airframe and the pilots flew it through a hailstorm and so it just came back and it looked like shredded shredded cheese on the whole front end but we didn't have the stuff to fix the composites properly so uh, we threw a hundred mile an hour speed tape over it and you thought that would have just been a temporary fix, but two years later and it's still holding up and still flyable. <laughs> so we just keep pressing on <laughs> <laughs> two years in it's still on there. Right? Yeah. yeah. They're like, well, it's, you know, and then people are making the money calls and you're like, Hey, we need this material. I'm like, yeah, it costs a lot of money though. Like it's still kind of working. So why don't you like, yeah, it's working, but it's not supposed to be the be all end all fix. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, kind of is. Okay. (laughs) I I can relate that exactly to mining, man. Like when when we were in in mining, like we would get pieces of gear shipped up to us that you could literally tell all they did was slap a coat of paint on it. It hadn't been commissioned out of shop. It hadn't nothing. Like it would show up to site, just this 
hunk of garbage and you had to try to get it to work just to get underground. Like, and sometimes being an electrician, I didn't have to worry about the, the diesel connections of it, but one of these, these machinery, these pieces of machinery that came up, I think in the shop, it had a, an electrical fire at one point. And so they literally, they rewired the whole internal circuitry with just blue single conductor. They must not have had any other cabling on site. So there's probably, I don't know, 200 electrical components all coming into this electrical panel. And it's all ran in blue single conductor, no wire tags. So whenever you'd have to trace out what is the, at fault in that piece of machinery, you literally had to point to point with your tester, get your your apprentice to go around to the other side of the machine. You're trying to point to point cables and it was, it was a nightmare, but nobody wanted to pay to rewire it because that's, that puts that machine out of commission for probably a month, six weeks, something like that at a time. So nobody's got time for that. Shoreline, is your brain exploding right now just from hearing that? Well, I mean, there's been several aircraft that I've worked on that were the same way. You know, you open it up and, and it might've gone through a mod in the past, but when they did the mod, they'd, they installed it, object it, made it go, but they didn't do any proper labeling. So when, like you said, point to point, doing continuity checks, trying to figure out what's going where. Um, now my now my cousin, uh, he's an electrical engineer on mining equipment in Western Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. And so some of what you're talking about, uh, the electrical panels and stuff, I've I've heard him telling me horror stories of his experience working those down. Uh, in the mines and he said for uh the company he works for they're switching over from um diesel powered units to all electric so with that they're having massive software issues that he's uh, having to troubleshoot miles below the surface oh man and kilometers um, yeah <laughs> for all you plaid jacket listeners yeah that's a, and that that's a factor that really doesn't get taken into consideration that much like when you're working underground like you've never seen a dark like that darkness like you, you'd hold your hand two inches in front of your face you have no idea that it's there right if the lights get turned out and so yeah that that's such a good point trying to troubleshoot anything underground and you're literally just going by your cap lamp and whatever else you've got in the area but it adds a whole different uh, dynamic to trying to diagnose any issue down there yeah and i think uh, six and i can attest to being out on the ramp in the middle of nowhere at nighttime um and trying same thing just a headlamp but you're not even allowed to have the the white light led on oh you don't have the red the red light on due Mm -hmm. to security issues and whatever else from locations we've been and uh yeah trying to do all that by that just that one tiny little red light is pretty pretty difficult at times right and then uh some of those wires they're not red light visible i would say i guess that's the word red light visible oh yeah yeah so like you're you're trying to look in as like which one is what and you see like next to nothing. You maybe see like a couple metal parts that they're like they're fastened or mounted to, but that's about it. Like, yeah, is, is that green, it? blue, or brown? I can't tell. <laughs> right, <laughs> they all blend into the same. Man. Well, and then to add to that, right? So it's hard to tell the colors under that red light, but then you're also trying to read um, documentation on how to fix it. Maybe some engineering directives or whatever else. Um, have you you know in in, in as our listeners know, and Six and I have discussed at length, like a lot of the directions or maintenance manuals that we have are less than adequate. And the engineering directives are written so vaguely, kind of left to open open interpretation. Have you ran into that in the mining side where uh, you're trying to fix things and what you're trying to work to is just, it's just not there in the paperwork, you know, it's just really lacking in uh, information. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I mean, I imagine it's the same with aircraft. I mean, I know I've heard you guys speak about working on really old aircraft and kind of bringing in the, like the, the last generation to kind of identify how to fix it properly. But it's the same with mining equipment because 
a lot of that, those machines are from the 60s, 70s, and they've just been refurbished over time. So you may get like eight set of prints that comes with this one machine. And then you're trying to figure out which pieces are from what era. And like they none of them are updated properly. So you're working on some components from the 70s. And then, you know, some stuff got added on in the 80s. And it's trying to decipher and it just makes sense of it all that that's mind numbing. Like I, I actually started in uh, mining because it's a pretty older demographic that still does it. I started apprenticing under a 78 year old electrician who, you know, his, his kind of wealth of knowledge was absolutely like foundational in me getting my foot in the door because he just basically showed me how to navigate all this stuff. He had just seen it all done it all. So it, uh, it was something that I really valued moving forward in, in my career in mining. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. But yeah, yeah like, uh, so, so depending on what you're working on, you have to know what, what decade it was from to know which manual to go to that's oh man that adds a whole other dynamic oh, oh at yeah. least for aircraft that, that there's usually one maintenance manual and yeah there might be different components installed from different eras but typically they're supposed to update the manuals with all that data to incorporate it into one location or at least have it under uh attached you know memorandums and things like that so you know kind of where to look for what but man that you know, so we have uh, in the States, we have the FAA regs, right, that we follow under. And I know in Europe, they have EASA standards, which they follow under. Uh, and the difference between the States and that, right, is, you know, you get an AMP in the States that's a license to work. You can work any aircraft and there's no limit to the aircraft you can work. Uh, and under EASA, you're limited to three, three type rated airframes. And then if one of those gets disbanded or whatever else then you can go back to school and get another airframe under your belt but you're only allowed three okay For mining is there any standards uh i know you know you go to school and get your licensing learn whatever else um but is there any specific licensing or uh you're only allowed to work certain equipment or you know what, what's the what's the standards there you know what? Not that I had ever experienced. Um, electrically, I was my ticket allowed me to go up to 750 volts, which uh, all of our machinery was 600 volt rated. We had like 5,000 volt transformers underground, but basically the company that I worked for employed guys with an A ticket. We call it up here, so they could they could deal with that high voltage, and I could work under that their umbrella. Um, so no, but it didn't have to do with specific machinery. Uh, for me, it was just voltage ratings. So anything under 750 volts, I could work on without any, anybody kind of watching over my shoulder. And so all of our machinery fell under that, but what you're talking about in the States, that probably makes a lot more sense because, you know, you can, you can see all different manufacturers roll through there and trying to stay on top of all of them. It's, uh, yeah, it's tough. It's next to impossible really, but you just kind of get pretty familiar with the machinery that you do have on site. And that's kind of what served me as best as I could kind of moving forward in that. That's cool. Yeah. It's just, it's just interesting to learn that the different rules and regulations under, under different industries, you know, you, 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 you hear the industry, but you don't really know the ins and outs of it and, and what makes it tick on a day-to-day -day basis, you know? Right. No, to totally. And like, like, I mean, like you guys were talking about with kind of duct tape, I mean, that's what keeps mining going essentially is duct tape or WD-40, whatever, if it, if it moves and it shouldn't, you know, spray with some WD-40, if it doesn't move and it should, you know, yeah, it's, it's just, that's the way it is kind of, kind of underground. And it's amazing. Some of the air quote band-aid fixes you can get away with, even in like Canada has the mine safety regulations, which we focused mostly on the electrical end of it, but it's amazing. Like, how loose and how many loopholes they give you as an electrician to just keep the mind going, regardless of kind of what 
potential hazards you may have in place. Like basically in there, it just says, as long as you have safety tape around it, you can do open air splice connections at 5,000 volts, whatever you need to, to make sure that that mine <laughs> oh keeps God. running. Oh Isn't it crazy it that they, that they say it's safety driven, but we all, but <laughs> if you really tr- follow the troubleshooting tree down, it's, it comes down to a, a, a dollar sign or, you know, a, it's money driven. Oh, whatever my it God. takes. We're going to write this so loose. So, we don't have to spend money to keep this thing going. Like it's crazy. <laughs> oh, it's, it's so nuts. Yeah. When it comes right down to it, push comes to shove. It's like, how much money is that costing you? Yeah. Just get it running. We don't care how. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I imagine it's the same with you guys too. And that kind of rolls right into the next question I had, I had for you two was um, how do you deal with the stress of the shopper of like your superior, whoever it is like breathing down your neck. And I don't know. I mean, I know me in maintenance, I, I kind of enjoyed that bit of pressure. I found that it made me kind of work a little bit sharper, if that makes any sense. But I wanted to hear your guys' thoughts on it. Alcohol and sarcasm. (laughs) (laughs) Caffeine and a lot of hate. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, I can relate to those too. (laughs) Well, like like especially with superiors, right? Because it all depends on what, what angle they're coming from. If they legitimately care, then it's not a big deal. Like, I get their stress. I get the the time crunch that they need to have because that were that essentially pays our job. But then you get like certain individuals who are really about trying to meet that goal or or exceed it. So they start like pushing things ahead of, of what they should uh, be um, executed by, and that's when we run into real problems. Like, I, I get it what you're trying to do, however. A, this is not safe. B, I don't have the means to do it. And then C, it's not right. So you, you pick and choose your fight, man. Like, do you want to meet your timeline or do you want to go to jail? <laughs> or- well, and to add to that, right, you might get people in management um, who know nothing from our end, know nothing about aviation. They're just money people. They, you know, they don't need to know the aircraft or how it works. They just need to know uh, how to move people in a certain direction and how to keep the dollar expenditure down Um, oh absolutely so so when it comes like you know from six and i's past uh doing flight tests and things like that they would come in and okay here's the here's the path of progression from day one we're going to start start and incorporate these components into this airframe we're going to ground test it then we're going to flight test it then we're going to everything's scheduled out well you come down through it and you're like oh well you know engineering forgot um a couple of the parts Okay, well, when can we get the parts? Well, it's going to be a three-day delay. Okay, well, let's just uh, button everything up. Let's take a lap around the field, you know, burn a lap around the flagpole and uh, vet out what we've got so far. And then we'll come back and incorporate the other stuff. And and so from like what in Six and I's position at that time, like, no, hold on, hold on. You want to button up everything now. We've gutted this plane. You want to button everything back up to fly it for 30 minutes around the field to land it, to then gut, oh, take it apart and gut it again, and then incorporate these other two components to then button it back up, to then take it around the field for another 30 minutes. Like, you're you're asking, first of all, it just doesn't make any sense. It's a lot of wasted time and effort. Right. Uh, second of all, you're, you're just asking for more problems to be induced. The more you, you know, as you know, the more times you take apart and put something back together, the chances of things go missing or getting damaged or whatever else is higher and then say something does go missing or gets damaged now we're down even more time to fix that component if or wait for a replacement part if we would have just waited for the other stuff initially it's you know that's this the stuff that bean counters don't see on a day-to-day 
Oh, big, big time. It's like, it's like they view kind of any downtime in the shop as, as the biggest negative possible. But it's as like, negative, no, no, this is yeah. going to save you money in the long run. I, I promise you, listen to me. Right. And then, oh, by the way, the three days that got delayed because of the parts is not being added to your timeline goal. We're actually, we're just going to press on with the original timeline. Now you just have three days less to get it done. We're like, wait a minute, what? No kidding. I mean, I can't remember if it was MVP or U6, but in one of your guys' recent episodes, you were talking about how there was only two of this specific tool for this one part that you were trying to get out across. It was in North America or maybe even the world. Like in a situation like that, where you're waiting on this one particular tool to come in to properly do a job. I mean, but you oh, still got, yeah. yeah, you still got your, your kind of superiors breathing down your neck. It's like, what do I do here, guys? Like cut me a little bit of slack. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I remember, I remember that. I remember that episode. So I was actually working in Calgary at that time. Oh, uh, we had a Falcon 2000 aircraft up there and it was an older model. It was one of the, uh, first few serial numbers out there. So, and then on those Pratt and Whitney motors at that time, the gearboxes seals that they were using on those were a little different. They had to be pressed in, whereas the other one were mag seals. So with that, yeah. So there's two, two, two tools in existence to remove those seals out. One was in Paris at the time at Dassault and one was in New Orleans. So we had to wait, yeah, to get the one up from, from New Orleans, but it's just, it's crazy. They don't understand. Like, well, keep trying. You're like, keep trying. I've, I've tried everything <laughs> I could. What, what do you want me to do? There's a, spe- a special tool that was made for this because it's a known problem. I'm like, we'll just figure it out. And I'm like, I did figure it out. I figured out there's a tool and we're going to order the tool, you know, like, it's just, but they don't, they don't understand. Like you're just sitting around like, well, we're paying you to sit around. I'm like, it, it, it is what it is. It's the nature of the beast, you know? Right. It happens. I'm sorry. You that's know? exactly it. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I, I, I love that episode. The same with the ones where you're talking about, uh, I think it might've been the same episode is talking about field built tools. Like, I don't think there's any, I mean, it sounds like aircraft mechanics, you guys have got a nail too, but miners, man, like they build the craziest contraption, these big pieces of shit to do a specific job, but there is nothing else in the world that'll do the job like like that tool that like we had a, a millwright who would create the craziest tools for us to to get specific situations get out of those jams but man like there's so much intelligence built into that like those guys it, it's amazing what some of them can come up with well, oh, yeah. what, what's what's funny in aviation is we'll yeah we'll build those field tools and then the next thing you know that becomes standard kit in your <laughs> issued toolbox yeah the, the same the same frankenstein tool until someone smart comes along and then makes it professionally. So like, okay, at least now, now it has a sticker on it. <laughs> right. Yeah, we, we, right. we, we glued duct taped and screwed it together in the field to make it work. And then somebody, and then we went, went to a superiors back home and said, Hey, this is what we've built to, to, to make this job particular job happen. Like, cool. And they give it to engineers who take dimensions, put it in CAD drawings, and then they mail out a professional looking tool. Right. And, uh, and then don't, don't give credit to the guys who developed it on their own. So yeah. Yeah. I'm that sure makes- you run into that too in mining. Like, oh, we say we developed this cool thing. And the manager's like, yeah, look at what we developed. You're like, no, wait a minute now. <laughs> <laughs> Man, totally. Like we had the millwrights building the coolest kind of cable hanging gear for us. It would basically, I don't know if you're familiar with underground gear, but it's called a scoop. So it's a big four-wheeled machine that goes down and it's basically just a big, big front loader where the scoop is as big as the machine itself. So it's picking out the muck or the the blast rock, pulling it to- Oh start- yeah, yeah, I've seen those. I've seen those. Yeah, so we had our, um, our millwright built up this big arm that would basically hang our cable for us off the side of the scoop. So we'd have one guy standing in the scoop, which may be frowned upon, but 
I'm, I'm out of mining now. So we'd have one guy standing in the scoop, just guiding it along. And the, the scoop would literally hang our cable for us. Next thing you know, they've sent it off and they've got these things made up properly. And yeah, sure enough, it's got the mining company's logo slapped on it. You know, I think they bought the Millwright uh, uh, Tim Hortons gift card or something and said, thanks for this. But you know, like, it's just, <laughs> it's crazy. It was genius though. He built it on the spot out of some scrap steel and it, it served us for like three years of trying to advance the mine cable. Nice. Yeah, man. So I, and going back to the bean counters too, like, I don't know if you guys have had any, do you guys ever do like the kind of QC stuff or where you're commissioning equipment to be released like that day? Oh yeah. To a, to a point. Yes. Um, we've, um, uh, we have our, uh, a section in our quality control team where like there's one of their main jobs is to inspect tooling when it comes in and when it leaves. So, uh, sometimes we'll have, a contractor on site to make some stuff for us or within an earshot of the site to make stuff for us. So we would actually have to inspect their, their, their tools or the tooling that they made for us, give, depending on what kind of work it's supposed to do and what we commissioned them to do. And they have their own set of specs, but really saying we like, well, it looks, it looks all right. I guess it's cool. You know? <laughs> so especially if it's one of those like special made, like this only exists the first time ever. So oh, totally, uh, I guess I don't, I don't know what this looks like, but all right. <laughs> oh yeah. Like, and I, I just mean like, oh, so one situation that I had, like we had a machine roll up to site and basically we were talking about the bean counters again. So I had this jumbo roll in, which is basically the articulating drill for underground, um, big piece of machinery, expensive as hell. And so we had this thing going down underground. I had it commissioned in the shop. It was all good. Rolled it down to the operating face where we were drilling into this ore vein and we had everybody down there from the mine superintendent, a bunch of the board members, like literally all the bean counters in the company. It was a blizzard of white hats down there. And they go to plug this thing in, switch it over to electrical to fire up the drills. As soon as they plug it in, like nothing turns on, nothing at all underground. And I'm standing there like mouth hanging on, on the ground. Like I've, I was never been more embarrassed in my life because I just commissioned this thing 45 minutes before it drove. It's all the way down the drift. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you guys have had like this where maybe you've commissioned something or cleared something to go on the runway and then maybe something drops out last minute and now all of a sudden it doesn't work and you're the one sitting there kind of holding your, your, your tool in your hand like, oh, fuck, don't look at me. But with this thing, we had to take it back up to surface and they ended up actually bringing it from the shop it, in the slip rings in the, the electrical connections in the box. They had miswired a door switch. So all the rattling of it driving down this drift actually changed the position of the door switch the way it should have been. And it, it basically malfunctioned. It cut all power to the unit and I had to bring it back up to surface. And I don't think I've ever had more kind of, I've, I've never, I've never had kind of my foot in my mouth so bad as, as that point in time. Like, and again, with all the bean counters right there, all of them trying to, you know, tell you, they're looking at their watches. They're saying like, how long is this going to be? And I, I had it down, down there for probably half an hour. And it was the most stressful, stressful point of time in my mining career ever. Um, I can't, I personally can't say I've done something like that, but uh, MVP and I've had instances where we have, like you said, a blizzard of white hats around. And they want a certain test or a certain aircraft or a certain uh, flight to go so much that they'll they'll gloss over a whole bunch of stuff, even though there's a whole bunch of red flags going up like this shouldn't go. And they're like, it's fine. Just do it. We, we got people here. We got demonstrators here. We got buyers here. We got uh, customers here, whatever the case may be. And they say, push, go, go. And we're like, this is probably not a good idea. I mean, 
it's I mean, easier. In my past, I've had situations like that where, you know, it taxis out, aircraft taxis out, everything's going well. They get to the end of the runway, getting ready for takeoff roll. And then you hear the RTB call, return to base. Uh, they come back to chocks and you're like, oh man, what's going on? And you're like, uh, we lost fuel pressure. And you're like, oh man, I just replaced the fuel <laughs> control. Son of a bitch. Like, mm. So you start looking at it and you get in there and then like there, like, there's like, you know, it's like slotted adjustments, right? For certain switches. Yep. And, um, and you know, you, you thought you rigged it right and you put it and come back up and you look, uh, at the at the adjustments, and that switch had moved just a little bit. Oh man, it doesn't uh, take it, it, anything. Yeah, it doesn't take anything. It was just a little bit, and you start looking at it and you're like, I guess I didn't tighten those adjustment screws down hard enough. You know what I mean? <laughs> just dumb stuff like that. But everybody's looking at you like you just replaced that fuel control. What What did you do? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, how dare you? And, how dare you? Yeah. And you know, like you said, it is stressful because all eyes are on you, and you're like, uh, just sorry, everyone, just trying to. Just playing aircraft mechanic today, you know. <laughs> and that's um, it. That's it. Especially when everybody knows it was you who worked on it. It's like, oh my god! Like, there's so much egg on my face. There's no way I can talk my way out of this. Well, yeah, engineers are staring at you. Management staring at you. But the <laughs> worst part, the worst part, are your your counterparts, your equals who are standing out there. They're not helping you. They're just talking shit to you the whole time while you're trying <laughs> yeah. to fix it. You suck. What the fuck? You know, just shit like that. And you're like, that's the worst part to me is that your equals are, are dogging you the whole time. Oh, I know exactly. Yeah, that's the worst. We had one guy on site who would actually sign his initials in every single electrical termination box that he did, which I had never seen before in my life. Like, I love the guy. He was an old timer. He was probably 65 while I was working in the oil field. But I have never seen that before ever. Like, normally everybody's like, don't admit to anything. It's like, don't, don't say you worked on that just in case anything goes bang one day. That's exactly how aviation is. Like, dude, don't incriminate yourself. What are you doing? Hell no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Well, don't don't sign up for that. That because God forbid, let's say an aircraft goes down or whatever else, and you got the NTSB out there doing their investigation. They find the one, and that's the one piece that didn't get destroyed was was the panel you signed your name on. You know, it, oh. it, exactly. Yeah, that's what we would always say too. But he said, you know, he he did uh, kind of leave a lot of good lessons on me. He did say to take pride in his work, and that's what he did. Like I, I can't, I can't say anything bad about him, but it's not something I would ever incorporate into into my work. Oh, so yeah. we have log books, right? Talking about signing our name. We have log books. So everything that we do in an aircraft has to be annotated in the aircraft log book. And you basically sign your life away as the job being uh, completed. And then once you get to a certain level, you know, you have um, release or safer flight. So you'll sign, sign your life away saying that the entirety of that aircraft is good to go. Even though you might've had 10 other people working on it and then they have signed off their individual jobs, but then you as as a safer flight individual, you're going around, you're kind of making the, sure the paperwork squared away, all everything's good to go, everything looks good, uh, and you and you sign it for safer flight. Do you guys have anything like that in mining, uh, m- machine logbooks, or um, y- you know, like now in today's world, we have all computer based logbooks, but do you guys have things like that where all the jobs you have to be annotated somewhere for tracking purposes, or just kind of oh, broke, we fix it, and now it's working again type thing, and on, on with our day. No, it was all it was all documented. We had like uh, me being kind of the mine supervisor there. I had to have a daily logbook that I would log all the work that the guys did. That was just basically my own, like to cover my own ass, what we have done. Uh, so I didn't have to collect signatures from the guys in that case. But as far as like when it came to PM, so preventive maintenance, like we had to sign off on all that stuff, sign off on exactly what was done. <laughs> and we'd usually have to get the 
um, the mechanic supervisor who was also overlooking the mechanical portion of that machine, not the electrical end, but they would sign off that we had done it as well. And so we would kind of cover each other's asses just saying that, yeah, this is what we've done. Like it, it helped us get pretty familiar with the machines themselves, but yeah, that was all documented just to make sure that it did all get done properly. And, uh, like at the correct engine hours and everything. Now let's say there was, um, a mishap down in the mine, right? Uh, something in the machine an operator was using it, something malfunctioned in the um, individual, the operator or somebody close by got hurt due to the malfunction or whatever else. Is there a safety board that you'll have to shut down operations for a time until that investigative team comes out and does their, their reports and files at all and says, okay, now you guys are cleared to, to open again. Is there yeah. anything like that? Yeah, there was. I mean, uh, in this mine that I was working at, we had several headings kind of going at the same time. So you had the main drift going down, but then it would tee or branch. And so we'd have different headings going. So depending on what was happening, it would usually shut down one heading and then they would start to investigate. I mean, personally, we never had a, a machine malfunction. It was usually, I mean, if you've ever been around miners, it was usually operator error <laughs> a lot of the time down there. Um, but yeah, that, that did take place. They would, they would kind of look back at the log books on the specific machines, check out the hours, check out when the last maintenances were done and just do a once over for that. But I, I had never been in a scenario where it did come down to a mechanical or electrical malfunction. No, that's kind of, that's kind of the same with us to a point. Like a lot of issues are typically caused by operator error, AKA air crew. Uh, it, it, we do have some instances where it was caused uh, by a mechanic or a technician, but majority of the times it's it, it it's some things we can't do while it's on the ground. It's only things that we can only induce or figure out once it's in the air. Oh man, that's so frustrating too. From uh, like a maintenance end, trying to recreate those issues that only happen when it's whatever un in service, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, because when it's in flight, it's it's under all sorts of other stresses and loads that you can't duplicate on the ground. So they're like, well, we, you know, we'll fix it. And you're like, well, I've done the ops check 10 times over. Like I can't, it's not, it's not malfunctioning. Whatever's happening in the air is what's causing this thing to trip, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that goes back to that same issue that I had commissioning that one piece of gear, basically when it was in shop and it was driving on smooth pavement, this one little door switch in basically the connection point where the, the big electrical cord reel rolls out. Well, that switch point was closed. So it, it conducted electricity. It allowed, that was the safety function, just in case you're servicing, if you're servicing the slip rings and you open that door, you don't want to have 600 volts live staring you right in the face. So that'll kill power to the unit. So, but as soon as it drove down the bumpy, rocky drift, that door swung around, got loose. And then all of a sudden that door switch didn't engage anymore. But again, when you're under pressure trying to deal with that, and now you're into a real world situation and this just commissioned 30 minutes ago on surface, like, why isn't it anymore? Like it's tough to try to figure those, those solutions out when you're under pressure. Oh, and most definitely. <laughs> so <laughs> most definitely. in those kind of situations, right? You're just saying, uh, oh, well, this was just commissioned on surface. Now we're taking it down. It doesn't work. Somebody got hurt then at that point or whatever else you know, say worst case scenario, somebody got hurt. Right. Um, can you're, you know, and then you get um, whatever the investigative uh, safety board or your quality control coming down, whoever's, whoever's running that, do they, can, can licenses or certifications be revoked on the spot and they basically say, get the hell out of the mine type thing. Like we, you're, you, you can't work in mining anymore because you're a safety hazard type thing. You know what? That'd be interesting. I had heard stories about that before where guys would get kicked out. So I imagine that it does happen. Um, I had never seen it personally in, in my five years underground, but 
I've I've definitely seen it or I've heard of it. Yeah, that the guys will just get kicked out. And I don't know if it was uh, a regular regulatory board thing or if it was just your name. Like mining's a really small world. I'm sure that aircraft mechanics is too. But you you kind of everybody knows about other people and you kind of just get blacklisted. That was the same way in oil field as well. Um, but yeah, I don't know if it was actually a regulatory board that kicked them off or it was just kind of the industry itself just just cut them right out of it. Hmm. Oh, okay. So from my experience, so I was working uh, private jets um, here in Southern California at one point, and um, I was out in the line one night working a, working a jet and probably two jets down, there was another guy from another company working another aircraft uh, in the middle of the night, you know, and with the FAA, they can spot check you at any time on the ramp, you know, roll up. Hey, let me see your licenses. What are you working on? Let me see the paperwork. Let me see the document. Like they'll just, they'll just kind of spot check you. And this guy had been doing, he got spot checked one night, probably two in the morning. Um, you know, starts, let me see your license. Okay. It's current and whatever else. Let me see your, you know, other certifications. What do you have on you? You know, you have your, uh, part 145, you work for them. You got some, you got all sorts of documentation. Okay. Let me see the aircraft logbook. Let me see your work order. Cause to work on certain jets, you have to have a work order from the company who owns and operates that aircraft. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so the work order that he had, had a specific statement of work and what that guy was doing was not on the, on the work statement. And so he was, and he hadn't annotated in the aircraft logbook and he was called out on it. and lied um essentially to the faa inspector and the guy said okay uh let me check your license one more time pulls out his license hands it to him and, and the faa inspector cut it up on the spot to get the hell off the ramp and that guy really? can never work in aviation again wow like he, he couldn't even go back and retake his schooling if he wanted to nope nope full wow. full provoke uh restricted now, now you're now your credibility you're now we, you can't be trusted essentially so and and with aviation, you know, people's lives uh, are in the balance. And so it's one of those like, now nah, you can't, you're done. That's incredible. I know, I mean, at least with where I work, the it's British Columbia, but the BC Safety Authority, they can pull your contractor's license and basically cut it up uh, if they deem you yeah unsafe or if you've put people in unsafe situations before anything big happened on one of your sites, they, they can definitely do that here as well. Yeah. Or, or you, you might get suspended for a time, right? You, you know, I've seen, I've heard of that happening, like things will happen or whatever else. It wasn't, wasn't life, you know, threatening or detrimental. It was just kind of one of those, like, you know, you messed up and you lied, but it wasn't severe. So. Yeah. And that, that part of it, I, I totally understand. So I've seen that as well, but I, yeah, I've, I've heard of people again, getting kicked out of the industry altogether, but that's, well, I mean, it's good. I guess it keeps some uh, some regulations in place that, you know, <laughs> you don't necessarily want some of those guys still in the industry, but. Sure. But what happens too with it as well is you get people who are also afraid to to do anything, right? So as you know, from your industry and from ours, troubleshooting is a big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that takes years and experience to get really good at. And what I'm noticing, at least in the industry, is nobody troubleshoots anymore. The minute they run into a problem, it's like, oh, I don't know. Let's call the engineers. Let's just stop everything. Oh, hold on. Like, it might be a simple fix. Just just pull out the multimeter real quick and let's pin it out. No, 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 no. We, we got to get in engineering and stuff involved. And you're like, it's not. What are you doing? You know, we're here in the hangar. We're in a safe environment. Like, what's, but yeah, it's just you're because of that, everybody's afraid. Everybody's afraid to do anything. Right. Which no. is, which is kind of bad in its own right, yeah. too. So, I mean, I mean, let's not try to do any crazy troubleshooting, you know, like let's take, take the part and recreate the environment 
by cement, by throwing it in a refrigerator or something like that. And that's completely different. What, what we mean is like, let's follow our troubleshooting steps, or at least what we know the functionality of the component is supposed to be, and then figure it out from there. Because if we, if we just kind of drop our, the drop our pack and just assume someone else will take care of it, then that's just more money, more time, and more reason for you to get axed, you know? Oh, well, and, and, yeah. and with it, right. So let's say it's an electrical problem. Okay. Hey, uh, this component's not powering on. Well, the component's probably bad. We should just replace the component. Well, hold on. We know power is coming from here and we're not getting into this component. Let's start working back the line. Let's go from the power source to the next component, to the next component. So instead of replacing a $5,000 box, it might just be a $20 relay switch, you know, right. uh, totally. but without the troubleshooting, you wouldn't know. But it's just, people don't look at it from that. They're like, no, 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 I'm hands are clean. You can't, you're not going to get me today. Not today, Satan. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> right. Yeah. And I, I think you're right about that. Maybe that's coming from being just overregulated and guys getting scared to kind of put their name on anything. Cause yeah, you're right. I mean, it could come down to a loose connection for all we know, or a blown fuse. Like that's, it could be a real simple fix. Yeah. Well, like you said, uh, guys are afraid to do anything and don't want to sign their name to it. Like, they might, I've witnessed this even recently. Guys will spend three days working something that comes down to signing off. Like, no, nah, I'm not signing off. Somebody else has got to go behind me and look at it and whatever. I'm like, are you not a certified, you know, technician? Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. I'm, so you're just going to go your whole career and never sign anything off. And right. I was like, they're like, yeah, if I can. I said, that's, that's just insane to me. Cause if you came to my shop and I was your lead or whatever, and you're telling me you're not going to sign anything off, I have no use for you. You know, because if I have to go behind you and inspect everything because you're not willing to sign it off, that that's I don't need you anymore. I'll just do the job myself. Right. I've seen some instances like that recently. Now that you mentioned that MVP about you'll get some technicians that will do they'll ask for courtesy checks right from inspectors or from someone else. Like, can you check on my stuff real quick? Like, they'll just do it up real fast and say, hey, can you courtesy check me just to see if I did it right? And then they'll say they'll some say someone else comes and does the said courtesy check like yeah it looks fine to me and then they call the inspector over and it's all dicked up or certain things are wrong because like, well what so-and-so said was fine or or yeah. oh yeah i've had that happen and they come over like hey can you can you back me up real quick and like okay and you kind of go through it and you do the object and you're like yeah it looks, looks good to me and they're like cool get my second signature then you're like no <laughs> wait a minute now <laughs> i just verified it's working i didn't do all the steps up to that i don't know if you put safety wire in the right location i don't you know I'm just verifying it operates, but what if you didn't torque something down? I wasn't here for every step. I'm not doing that. Yeah. Who was here working with you? You know what I mean? Right. And, and you're that, right. It's finding those people who can be accountable to their their own work. Like you said, like you have no use for somebody who's not going to be able to sign their own work off. You've got to, you've got to kind of take account for your own stuff. Yeah. And if you're not comfortable signing off your work, let me know and I'll find, you know, I, I need, I need a broom pusher all day. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you one of those. I'll give you one of those spots. Right. Or, or like, we'll, we'll have someone who's, who has experience, like kind of show you the ropes for a little bit, but you know, you can only use that excuse for so long. Be like, dude, it's been like three months. You should know how to do this by now. Or it's been X amount of years. You should know how to do this by now. Yeah. yeah. It's been, it's been, it's been a year and a half. You should know how to power up this one specific airframe by now. Like it's like, it'd be for like the mining equipment, right? You have a technician and you got one of your pieces of equipment and the guy's like, Hey, can you come power it up for me so I can do whatever? Like, man, it's been six months. You should know. You should know how to power this this unit on by now. That's 
step number one, you know? Yeah, that's that's a good point. I think that's that's a lot of what it comes down with maintenance too. I mean, yeah, there's there's obviously a massive learning curve for any kind of new equipment, but at the same time, you've yeah, you've got to be accountable for it, kind of a, a quick learner. I mean, it's not for everybody, like you guys are well aware of. There's a lot of stress when it comes to maintenance, <laughs> you're trying to keep things working and you're you're always running into a different kind of hurdle to jump over. But yeah, I agree. I agree. I think uh, to kind of give a little bit more open perspective, as Shoreline actually mentioned something like this with his job where he had a guy that said, oh, I, I've had X amount of years experience on this type of equipment. So they said, all right, cool. This is all yours. And then he had like no idea how to even turn it on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, are you are you serious, bro? And then here and then here's Shoreline. Lou has never even seen this thing or um, have you or you've had little experience with it. And then you're the one pretty much figuring it out on the fly because so and so for all the years that he says he's worked it still doesn't know how to plug it in. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that definitely that that definitely happened. <laughs> oh my god. I can't imagine that. I can't believe that. That's crazy. But so. I think we have that for for any industry, right? You get the loud mouths who come into the hangers or the mine and saying, "Oh, I know how to do this. I've done this forever." And you try to like, "Hey man, um here's how we do things here." This and that like and they kind of cut you off and say, "No, no, no. I I I, I know what I'm doing." <laughs> oh, okay then. You know, so you let them go and then you kind of watch them from afar and you're like, man, what is that guy doing? Or like in <laughs> aviation, like, like at the end of the week report, like, yeah, we had this many incidents this week and cost this much, many thousands of dollars in damage. And it's all the same guy. And you're like raising your hand and back, like, wasn't that guy supposed to be the most knowledgeable and most time in service and whatever else? I was like, what, what time in service, you know, uh, yeah. where did you work? I'm, I'm starting to question things now. Right. When yeah. you can't even drill straight holes or know that a 24 amp uh, connector go, does not go into a five amp socket. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's true. I mean, it's, it's funny. I don't know how you guys feel about it, but I know there's a lot of egos in any trades or any kind of maintenance. But if you hear somebody coming in tooting their own horn, like a little bit too loud, it makes me leery right away. Like I'm like, all right, something's not right here. If this guy's got to kind of shout himself up this big. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you're 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 talking yourself up an awful lot, which makes me think that you have to do this to try to set the precedence right away before anybody learns what your real lack of capabilities are. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's what I've experienced too across all of mining, well, across trades in general. But yeah, it's funny that that uh, that relates to to aircraft mechanics as well. Almost deaf. <laughs> so I figured definitely. we could kind of close out the conversation here by uh, kind of what still excites you about your your field that you're in about about aircraft maintenance. Go ahead, Six. Uh, so for myself, I mean, I, I like solving problems. I like challenges. I like uh, improving things. You know, that thing that's like the big driver is improving things. And especially something with aviation in general, it's it evolves so fast. Before everything was all mechanical and springs and all kinds of stuff to kind of get it going. But now everything's all just fly-by-wire computer stuff. So every, it's slowly evolving into a more electric, software-heavy piece of equipment. And you got to kind of adapt and overcome every step of the way. And figuring all these issues and coming up with solutions that can make it work and make it work better, it's kind of been like the, the driver mostly for me, is that every time it's something new and every time it's a different way to make something improve. And for myself, you know, what Six said as well, right? Making, finding, the problem solving. Here's an issue and here's a hurdle and we came, overcame it um, and made made the thing happen in under budget and under time, you know, um, mission success, whatever else. But uh, personally for me too is, at least with what I'm doing now, um, it's the mission statement. So 
what what I guess you know you get the maintenance what and what the bird does while it's up and away. Um, making makes me feel like I'm I'm doing uh, positive changes in the world. You know what I mean? Oh, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, I can I can echo kind of both of your guys' statements there. I I love how fast. Like, I mean, talking about what you were saying six, how all the the flight navigation and everything is going more electrical, and it's obviously electrical itself is evolving so quickly like every day there's new technology coming out and it's trying to stay on top of it as best you can and then also realizing that i'm never going to learn it all so trying to pick and piece whatever i need to and then yeah i completely agree mvp it's it's nice to try to kind of see a project finished like you were saying seeing the flight notes for me it's for me it's just seeing like a building completed or a project completed and then you see people moving in or whatever a business take take hold in there like it's just kind of cool to see and know that you were a part of completing this this larger project yeah from from like my own personal experience like hey because you guys did this we were able to be we were able to be you know on target at a certain time and we're able to capture um certain things you know i'm trying to be real vague and not yeah no <laughs> i understand too much information here but uh, one of those kind of things like man because because we put in the time and the effort and we kicked ass um you know there's one less, one less, uh, bad entity rolling around type thing. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So that, that's what I appreciate the most Yep. or excites me the most. Excuse me. <laughs> yep. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for coming on guys. And thanks for having me on your guys's podcast. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been fun. I appreciate, uh, appreciate this collab. It's kind of, like I said, it's our first one and it's, uh, it's, it's fun to talk to people who are in a different industry and, and you learn the ins and outs of each other. So, you know, the listeners are kind of getting a bit of both and, and learning something new, but you know, the guys talking are also learning something new. I learned a lot about mining today that I didn't really know. So yeah, no it, kidding. It's yeah. really, really informative in that end. Yeah. I knew absolutely nothing about mining, but now that having you on and uh, giving a little bit, it's like, oh, it's okay. I understand this. I understand that. And then just how all of it just kind of melds together or there's similarities with all of it. And then Charlene, especially with his field go from electronics on the audio side of thing, how it's melding with yours. I'm like, wow, like it all comes together you know it does, it's all man. like one big one big circle that drives each other yeah that's exactly how i feel too that's what i i lo- that's why i love listening to your guys' show to be honest is because you learn so much about like i may not know the exact components you guys are talking about but i i know the exact feeling like and it relates directly to my line of work or different experiences i've had and so yeah that's what i really appreciate about this too because you can just you see all the similarities between the different fields and it's kind of cool well i gotta i gotta tell you that's nice to hear because um and we've uh, we've heard it before from a couple of individuals as well, but but being relatable, right? So, you know, we could sit sit up here and do TED talks all day, and people go, okay, well, you know, that's a lot of information, but whatever else. But you know, I know nothing else about the the industry, so they kind of tune out of it after a while. But but being relatable, you know, they can listen to it and say, yeah, I work in food service, but man, that one story you told still, man, that reminded me of this one time and I was laughing about, you know, it stuck, sucked at the time, but now I can laugh about it type thing. And that's, that's, that's been a pretty rewarding aspect of this too. Most definitely. Most definitely. Yeah, man, absolutely. Well, I mean, if you guys are down to do it again, we, we definitely will, but yeah, I just, I appreciate your time and I don't want to, don't want to take too much of it here today. It's a nice Sunday. Absolutely. More than willing to uh, do this again or another crossover again. Oh yeah. Sounds good. Cool. Well, we appreciate it, sir. Thank you. And uh, we'll be in touch. We'd like to thank our patrons for supporting our show and allowing us to keep producing episodes, bring on guests, and keep Shoreline ever the happy to produce our show. With special thanks to Erica Lamont, Chris Hawkins, Stephanie Boltman, Jenny Dignan, Ryan Frushauer, Daniel Schubert, and Steven Shivers. Thank you all, our patrons, so much for all your support 
And again, your patronage. If you have ideas, topics, or stories for the show, or you would like to be a guest on the show, visit cancelformaintenance.com and drop us a line on our contact us section. We will do whatever we can to get you and or your ideas onto the show. Check out our sponsor, Rockwell Time, for all sorts of outdoors and sporting apparel such as watches, safety-rated sunglasses, and snowboarding goods. Visit rockwelltime.com, use code CX4MX, and save 10% off your purchases. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash cancelformaintenance. Patronage, again, allows us to continue making episodes and maintain our gear. Patrons also get exclusive perks such as access to our Discord and discounts to our upcoming merch.